Volume 2, Chapter 13 of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 13 Beauty hath no luster, save when it gleameth through the crystal web that purity's fine fingers weave for it. Maturin. From the same to the same. March 15th. My last letter was dated on Saturday. That evening, Ellen remained with her sister. Mr. Willard was lying asleep upon the sofa, and I found myself sitting by the fire alone with Mrs. Willard. I had been teaching her a new stitch in knitting, and she had grown gay in recounting to me some of her favourite stories. She was, decidedly, in a softer mood than usual. Her tone and manner regained something of the suavity of her former days. We talked for a while upon indifferent subjects, and then, thoughtful of Evelyn's request, I seized upon the auspicious moment to say, "'We never speak of poor Evelyn now,' Could you ever satisfy yourself what had become of her? No, answered Mrs. Willard with a sigh. I have sometimes made myself sick with imagining, but I never could arrive at any probable conclusion. Encouraged by the affection expressed in these words, I ventured to continue. If some trace of her could be discovered, and if we could have reason to believe that owing to her youth, her inexperience, and the impetuous ardour of her character, she had been misguided, that she had been lured into the commission of Mrs. Willard's eyes kindled, and she fixed them searchingly upon my countenance, exclaiming, What do you mean? What then? Had any such misfortune occurred, continued I, somewhat disconcerted by the scrutinizing look. You would never refuse to see her again? Never, ejaculated Mrs. Willard, her eyes sparkling with indignation. I would never behold her face, and never pardon her, though she were dying of want. If she had made the false step to which you allude, our present poverty, our present unhappiness— and most deplorable situation would be owing to her. She would have robbed us of all the comforts of life, and sacrificed our position in society, our pleasures, to feed her own disgraceful passion. No, I would never pardon her. Not if she were penitent, ill, and humbled to the dust by affliction, and the sense of shame— would all her humbling put bread in our mouths? I repeat, I would never pardon her. But what do you mean by this singular conversation? Have you really found any clue to Evelyn's disappearance? Yet do not tell me if you have. I would rather believe that she was dead than to know that she lived and had disgraced herself and her family. If she has forgotten what was due us and to her own position in the world— let her suffer as she deserves. She has brought all her troubles upon herself. I discard her forever. It was useless to continue the conversation. 
Mrs. Willard's tone convinced me that her determination was unalterable, and I changed the subject. On Sunday morning, I omitted to attend divine service that I might spend the day beneath Nancy's humble roof with the two sisters. Evelyn's first question on beholding me was, Shall I see my mother today, or oh, say yes? You are not yet strong enough to undergo any excitement, dear Evelyn. Remember the doctor's orders. You must be submissive. So I will be. Pardon me. But let me see her as soon as you think I am able to bear the interview. But tell her I was forced to interrupt her. At another time, Evelyn, you shall give me your message. You must not exert yourself to speak now. Ellen and I will talk to you without your replying, and, if you please, Ellen will read to you one or two chapters from the holy book I have just placed in her hands. Evelyn smiled her assent, and Ellen read Christ's sermons on the mount in a tone so full of pathos that the tears sprang to her sister's eyes. I observed them and signed to Ellen that she had better close the book. To change the current of Evelyn's thoughts before it became too agitating, I described to her our little school, our pupils, our mode of instruction, and the wonderful resolutions that we intended to effect. She listened with great interest, particularly when Ellen joined in the conversation. In this manner the morning glided away, varied only by short intervals of silence, during which Evelyn seemed to slumber. And Ellen and I sat as we so often within the last fortnight had sat before, contemplating the lovely features before us, and watching the varied expressions that even in sleep by turns animated or distorted them. Lovely they were still, although beauty had lost its luster, for purity had been blighted by the mildew of sin. A woman's virtue has been compared to the hair of Samson, in it lies her strength. Surround her with what fascinations you will, they are weak, when this unparalleled charm is gone. So thought I, as I gazed on Evelyn's fair countenance, my spirit saddened by the thought that the future for her could yield little else but pain, and her own hands have sowed the seed from which she must reap these tares. It was my turn to pass the night with Evelyn, but her sister insisted that I should transfer the charge to her, so she could sleep where she was, and she preferred the narrow cot by Evelyn's side to her own comfortable little bed at home. On Monday morning I dispatched a note to Amy, requesting that she would call upon me at four o'clock that afternoon, as I particularly desired to converse with her. She sent me the following answer, which you may believe did not assist in lightening my spirits. Dear Miss Catherine, I would gladly come to you if I could, but I have been engaged all day with a couple of matua-makers who are puzzling their brains to devise something new for my bridal trousseau. You do not seem to allude to any very urgent business in your note, and, if that will do as well, I will call upon you with Hubert this evening. It would do your heart good to see Mother bustling about and calculating how many pounds of wedding cake will be necessary. She is determined to make it herself according to the good old-fashioned custom. Send me the word by bearer whether my presence will be of any importance before evening. If it will, I must even leave needle, thread, and mantua-makers in the bargain behind me and hasten to you. 
Yours with much love, Amy. The answer which I sent briefly stated that the intelligence I was forced to communicate was of considerable consequence, and that I would myself call upon Amy at four o'clock that afternoon. When four o'clock came, I kept the appointment. Amy expected me, and ran to the door herself to give me instant admission. "'Come look at my bridal presents. They are pouring in already,' she began, leading me upstairs as she spoke. "'I am so glad that you came yourself instead of waiting for me, for I have so many curiosities to show you. Hubert has the most perfect taste in bijouterie. My boudoir is almost lumbered up with his gifts.' I would rather see them at any other time, if you please, Amy. Certainly, but how serious you look. Has anything unpleasant occurred at home? Come into your chamber and I will tell you. No, the mantua-makers are there. Let us go into Papa's study. He is out, and we shall not be interrupted. We entered the study. I seated myself, and Amy took my place by her side. Now tell me, it cannot be anything very terrible, although you do look a little uneasy, said Amy, smiling in my face. Her joyous heart would not even admit a painful anticipation. My looks belie my heart, Amy, if they are not sad, and I mourn not for myself only, but for you. For me, dear Miss Catherine, what affliction could menace me, except indeed through those I love, and their misfortunes are truly mine? Have you forgotten Evelyn? Evelyn? Our cherished Evelyn, that I have not. I seldom cease to think of her. She is not dead. She is found. Ellen and I have seen her. Amy sprang from her seat and clasped her hands, and danced about me for very delight. I had never before beheld her so excited with joy. Her happiness had always been of a still and thoughtful nature. This ebullition of mirth seemed in her almost unnatural. Perhaps it was because it jarred upon my feelings, but I involuntarily turned away. The instant she caught my eye, she sat down again, and her mirthfulness was suddenly checked. Where had she been? What had happened to her? Why do you torment me by not telling me at once, dear Miss Catherine? Because, sweet Amy, I would let ill tidings tell themselves when they are felt. And my tidings are ill. Evelyn, she was so young, so unthinking, her principles were not fixed, nor her character formed. She has been led astray. Good heavens, speak plainly. I cannot believe that you mean she is less pure than when we last beheld her. It is too true, Amy. Evelyn, unfortunate Evelyn, so innocent and so beautiful. Has she indeed fallen? That is truly terrible news. But it was only a momentary hallucination. I know her fair soul too well to think that she could ever be really depraved. She is penitent, is she not? Most penitent, and so humbled that she feels unworthy of all kindness or pardon. Where is she? 
Can you not take me to her? I could not help exclaiming in admiration of the generosity of a truly pure mind. Noble-hearted Amy, and you would still look upon her as your friend? Surely I would, and will. She may have need of friends now. However great her fault may have been, it is not for me to condemn her. This is very sorrowful intelligence, Amy, but there is some untold even more afflicting to you. Summon all your strength. Try to believe that there is balm for the deepest wound. Are you prepared to hear something very dreadful? Quite, quite prepared. Pray, go on. Evelyn seducer. Amy turned deadly pale and appeared to be stifling. I could not go on, but she gasped out, Who? Who? Colonel Damoreau. A shriek, like that which you might imagine the shipwrecked voyager gives as the waves close over him, burst from Amy's lips. The next moment a stony calmness overspread her features. She sat rigidly still, and... Looking in my face as though she would say, Strike on. You have broken my heart. You cannot do more. I suffered almost as much as she did, although in a different manner. Finding that she did not speak or alter her position or give any other signs of life than those which the strange, despairing gaze bestowed, I gently took her hand. She withdrew it and murmured, I would be alone. I was forced to yield to her wishes and, rising, left the room and the house. The next day, Amy came to me. The calmness of that resignation which succeeds a fierce struggle was stamped upon her features. Her demeanor was not less gentle than usual, but cold, as though her heart had been chilled. She made no allusion to her own feelings or disappointments, and the name of Colonel Damoreau never escaped her lips, but she requested me to permit her to see Evelyn. I was not at leisure, and would gladly have postponed the visit, but all other considerations gave way at Amy's request. I accompanied her to Nancy's, and after preparing Evelyn for the interview, the friend of her childhood was once again clasped to her arms. I left them together, but dared not remain absent long, lest Evelyn be injured by this undue excitement. When I returned to the chamber, I found that my presence was needed, for Evelyn had lost all control over herself, and was weeping upon Amy's bosom, and wildly reproaching herself for the sorrow she had brought on others. I drew Amy away, and left Evelyn under her sister's care. Amy returned home with me. On the way, she never once mentioned herself nor her unworthy lover. Her conversation turned solely upon Evelyn. End of chapter 13